0: And uh, I want to go ahead and start the tape before I make a comment. Uh, I, I made an error last week in the sermon, I think it was last week, yeah, it had to then, uh, in which I mentioned that the Anasazis disappeared from here about 1,200, and that the evidence of Israel began to appear about 1,200 in the Middle East. And uh, I don't know what I was thinking, I guess it wasn't, but... The Amazons disappeared from here A.D. 1200, and the evidence of Israel began to appear in Israel at 1200 B.C. That occurred to me later. Someone said, I think someone said something about it, or occurred mm-hmm. one. Uh, those just those two. The 1200s came together in my mind, and somehow I short circuited and forgot the A.D. and B.C. I don't think it changes the theory on Israelites, or part Israelites, being the Anasazis, who were kicked out of here around 1200 A.D. And it still remains true that Israel began to be in the Middle East in the 1200 to 1000 B.C. period of time, because that's when archaeologists began to dig it up. So, first, that thought that I gave that, that the 1200 of the Anasazis disappearing here and appearing there could equate. Uh, that does not work. It's only off by, well, roughly 2,400 years. Uh, when I make mistakes, I make big ones. Anyway, uh, I heard some things last night which could be disquieting depending on how you think of it and what you think of what might be going on. And it spurred a thought in my mind that I wanted to go through and show the relationship of God with his people in conjunction with their closeness to and rubbing shoulders with the rulers and the leaders of this world. Now, we have gone over briefly here and there thoughts about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and of Pharaoh and and, uh, Joseph and so on. But uh, as I began to think about it, a lot of examples came to mind. And I'm sure I did not think of all of them Uh, by any means, but uh, quite a long list here. And I want to go back to Genesis 3, and let's understand some things about relationships of God's people and the rulers of this world. Now, what do you think was the first episode? First chapter is Genesis 3. I'm not going to take time to go back and read all of these stories. We could have a series of 15 sermons here very easily. I'm going to try to do it just today and so go over these things very briefly, Uh, though I understand my proclivities, so let's try it. But you know the story here. Satan was the ruler of the whole world. God had placed him as the prince of the power of the air, and it is stated in Revelation, he is the ruler of the world, the current evil world. And that began when Adam and Eve were put on the earth. And they rubbed shoulders immediately with the ruler of the world. And we know the story. They lost. They gave in. They made a mistake. God punished them for that, and we have suffered as a result of what both Adam and Eve did ever since. So that's the beginning of the relationship between God's people and the rulers of this world, be they spiritual rulers, or whether they are spirit rulers or whether they be physical human rulers. Started all the way back then. We lost round one. Now, would have Satan killed Adam and Eve had he had the opportunity? Yes, he would have. And in fact, their progeny, Cain and Abel, had an altercation, and Cain killed Abel. Now, that was the result of Satan's influence upon Cain, and his attitudes came from Satan the devil. Now, God preserved and God delivered Adam and Eve He was going to start something that had to have another end. So he didn't allow them just to be taken by Satan and killed that day. But God did pronounce ultimate death upon them, which happened nearly a thousand years later. But from that time forward, they were as good as dead. They would die. Their bodies would begin to run down, and they would begin to get old. It took a long time in those days. People lived almost a thousand years. But the process was put in place at that time. So this is the first time that God's people had a a run-in with the king of this world. We'll find that that is a constant down through man's history. That is one uh, relationship, if you want to call it that, but never ended. Satan still holds sway over the earth and over the minds of men. He broadcasts foul, evil things, and our minds pick them up so quickly, so easily, because they're there in the airwaves. So that is a constant, has been from Adam and Eve down until today, and will not end until he is bound a thousand years after Christ returns. Genesis 6, another story, God looked at the whole earth and decided that there was so much evil, so much sin, that he would simply destroy mankind. He repented himself. He says, why did I even make them? I'll kill them all. But there was an obstacle to that in that there was one righteous man, Noah. Out of all the people on the earth, out of all the rulers on the earth, Noah was the only righteous man. And God started a project with Noah, now he could have saved Noah in a lot of different ways but he chose to have him build an ark, a boat, a ship and he spent hundred years doing that that's a long process now he had to face the ridicule, the sarcasm the negativity of mankind every day of that project. Every day, all day long. I bet some of them sat up on the side of the hill and laughed and mocked and called in names. And Noah kept building, very patiently. Didn't give in. Now, I don't know who the rulers were of that world at that time, necessarily, but all mankind, was against Noah, yet Noah saw a job he had to do, and he cast aside all the criticism, ridicule, and went ahead with the project that God had given him to do. What a strong man, what an incredible character to take that. Sometimes we can only take criticism or ridicule or sarcasm or put down for what, seconds? perhaps, minutes, we might be able to handle days or weeks, but we're very limited in our capacity to take that, aren't we? And here's a man who took it for about 100 years, day in, day out, and not from one or two or three, but probably from thousands and thousands of people. How long do you think it took for the world of Ben Watts to hear about this guy? By word of mouth, now to the outer edges of civilization. They all knew. He went on. Well, God delivered Sidney. When the time came, God said, seven days from now it's going to start raining, Noah. Gather everything up. Gather the animals and the birds. Go into that ark, and you'll be protected. And Noah did, and God delivered him through that boat that had received all that criticism for all those years. Was God there? Did God hear the ridicule and criticism that came upon Noah's head and ears? Yes, he did. God heard it for a long time, and God was almost at the end of his patience with mankind already when he sent Noah to do the job. But God is very patient, and he held his wrath back during that whole time until the job was finished, then he saved Noah and his family. God delivered. Let's go to Genesis 12. We went, went over this story recently, but here's the case where, uh, well, let's see, down in verse about 20 it is, or no, verse 10, I guess. There was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn. And he came into Egypt, and he looked at Sarah and said, You're a beautiful woman to look upon, and I know those Egyptians are going to want you. So I want you to tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. Now, that was a half-truth, because she was his half-sister. But in another sense, it was not the truth. It was a lie. It was half a lie and half the truth, put it that way. Now, I won't get into the morality of whether he should have put it that way and whether he should have done that or not, The point is, Abraham was a man who obeyed God. He was a man that God had chosen to be the father of the faithful. So, be it as it may, be it a wrong moral approach that Abraham took, or be it justified by the circumstance, whatever your verdict might be on that, God's verdict was, I will back him up. He is my servant, after all. So God works with us in spite of our weaknesses and our faults, and we don't always know whether something was wise or whether it was wrong or right. But God knows how to forgive, and he knows how to take care of those that are his. So the story transpired, verse 15. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. said, man, we got a pretty one coming in. You may want her. Pharaoh said, bring her on. Let's have a look. And he even gave Abram sheep and oxen and donkeys and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Gave him a dowry for her. And I guess Abraham accepted that. Uh, False pretense in a way, yes. But that's what happened. And the Eternal plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram. Now this was before Abraham's conversion and covenant with God, before he changed his name to Abraham and changed Sarai to Sarah. So let's give him a little leeway here in what he did. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so I might have taken her to meet a wife? Now, therefore, behold your wife, take her, and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. So I guess he took the dowry. I don't know. It doesn't say for sure. But he took all that he had and went away. God delivered him. Now, Pharaoh was in a position where he could have killed Abraham very easily. He was the ruler of Egypt, and Abraham, or Abram at that time, was in Egypt. But God took care of the matter because he had a purpose for Abram later on. He knew how to deliver it. He did deliver it. Abram may have made a mistake. Now, which of us We look back to our lives have not made mistakes. Somewhere along the line, we have all erred. And yet God called us anyway, didn't He? I think, as I've used the example last week, Rahab the harlot did God's will. And she was included in Israel after that. I imagine she gave up her profession and did something else the rest of her life. But God listed her among the faithful in Hebrews 11. God delivered her when the Israelites would have killed her if it had not been for the red ribbons tight. God took care of even Rahab. So he could take care of Abram, for which he had huge plans a little later on. So if he made a mistake in the way of post it, so what? God had a bigger purpose, a bigger picture, A bigger job in mind for Abraham. Then we can go to Genesis 20. (laughs) And he did the same thing all over again. This time it was Abimelech who was the king. Chapter 20, Abraham journeyed, his name had been changed, he'd been converted at this point. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are but a dead man for the woman that you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay also a righteous nation? Said he not to me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself, said he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. Well, he was the king, he could take any woman he wanted, but he would not cross that line. And had he known she was married to Abraham, she, he said, I wouldn't have touched her, and I think he didn't touch her. And God came to him and let him know the situation. So what happened? He tried that trick once before, and it worked. And God delivered it, and he got out of it. So he says, I'm going to do the same thing again. And this time, God delivered him again. Sometimes we do make the same mistake more than once, do we not? And yet God is capable of delivering. Does a person have to be perfect for God to deliver? We all have faults. Is God capable of delivering us? Will God consider delivering people who are not yet perfect? Let's read on. I think he did with Abraham. I didn't never see anything that says Noah was perfect. He's perfect in his generations. Hadn't intermarried, but he wasn't a perfect man. There's been none. All right, we know the story of Joseph. We've been there recently. Joseph grew up the favorite of his father. His brothers resented him, hated him, and were jealous of him. So they decided to kill him, and then he was rescued from that and dumped in a pit and sold to the Midianites or Amalekites, sent down into Egypt. And God had a purpose for that man. And Joseph may not have been able to see that purpose clearly through all this because he was made a slave. And then Potiphar's wife, his, his owner, made a pass at him, and he ran from that, and he got accused of doing something he hadn't done and got thrown in the dungeon for seven years and must have despaired, but he made the best of it, as we saw. And then he was delivered from that and was put high in Pharaoh's court, right at the very top of the Egyptian government. Amazing. How did this guy, who is not even an Egyptian, come into Egypt as a slave? Just a step and fetch sway, do whatever I say, rose in his owner's house, then was defamed, put in prison, came out of prison, and became Pharaoh's right-hand man. That's an incredible story. How often in world history did something like that happen in any Gentile kingdom? But God delivered him out of all the troubles that he ever had. God saw that Joseph was able to do the job he had given him to do. All right, the other end of the captivity of Israel, Joseph got them into Egypt, God, or Joseph got them blessed there, and then later on, with another Pharaoh, they became abject slaves building cities for the Egyptians. Along comes another story. Has some Hebrew families there, and Pharaoh was beginning to fear the Israelites, not because they were so great, but there were just so many of them. And he was afraid there would be an uprising or a riot of some kind, a coup d'etat, and they would take over. So he said all the boy babies should be killed. Well, Moses had just been born. And his parents were afraid and put him on a little boat. <laughs> God used the boat with Noah. He used a lot smaller boat with Moses. Put him out there among the rushes to float in the river, so they might try to save him from the Egyptian soldiers coming around and killing all Hebrew babies. And he survived. How? Wonder of wonders. Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to bathe herself and saw the ark floating there, probably heard the child cry at some point, fetched him out, raised him as her own son in the court of Pharaoh. Now there's a fairy tale for you, isn't it? And then later on, after he had grown, he saw fighting an Egyptian misusing the Hebrews. So he killed him and buried him. He looked around both ways first. No, nope, nobody's looking. Killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. Next day, somebody saw it because the Hebrews said when they tried to break up a fight between them, what are you going to do to us like you did to that Egyptian yesterday? Oh, oh the story's out. He fled. The story got to Pharaoh, and he sent out after him to try to kill him. Now Moses is somebody. He was a prince in Egypt. But Pharaoh turned on him. He was well favored among the Egyptians. Pharaoh turned on him, tried to kill him. He went away for a long time, came back, and God used him to deliver Israel. So God saved his life when he was a child, saved his life when he killed an Egyptian, brought him back, and even saved his life again at the Red Sea by parting the water so Moses and Israelites could go through, and then killing Pharaoh and his soldiers. At least three times God saved Moses from a sure death. He had a purpose for him. God delivered. God tells us that he is a deliverer, doesn't he? Well, does he deliver the goods? Are you noticing a pattern here that in all eras, from Adam on down, and we're not done yet, from Adam all the way down, God's people always came into contact with the leaders of this world. And God invariably had to deliver them from them or allow them to be killed, one of the two. We'll see some of each. Saul, David, Solomon, we get into uh, the kings of Israel, and aren't going to go back there, but there are many, many examples through Kings, Samuel, and Chronicles of the kings of Israel and the leading men of God who got into trouble. Even Samuel himself, we were hearing about in the sermonette, got into trouble, had enemies, and God delivered him. But all true, you find that the kings who would obey God, in spite of their imperfections, God delivered from their enemies, caused their enemies to die. Look at David and Goliath. Look at Gideon, who started out with lots and lots of people as volunteers for his army, and God cut it down to 300. God delivered Israel. Because if there had been a great horde of soldiers, Israel might have said, we won this battle. But when God cut it down to 300, it was obvious that those were impossible odds, and there was no way Israel could prevail, except that God intervened and caused it to happen. Well, he was showing his strong and mighty ark. For many times, Israel went to war against Gentile kings. When they were obedient and doing what God wanted them to do, they were delivered. When they sinned and turned from God, they lost. And many, many lives were lost and they even went into captivity. So we find in there a lesson that obeying God will lead to blessing and deliverance, disobeying God And going any other way will lead to death and destruction. Just the way it is. It's cause and effect. God will bring upon us whatever effect we have caused. That is the lesson of the kings of Israel. They obeyed. God did deliver. Let's go to the book of Joshua. I want to turn to this one because the parallels about what God tells Joshua at the beginning of his job are very similar to what he tells those who would build the latter temple in Zephaniah and Haggai and in other places in Isaiah and so on, where he gives instruction to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. But God approached Joshua, and he said in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over Jordan. He brought them right to the banks of the Jordan River. Moses went off and died. And he told Joshua, the job is yours now. You're to take the people into this land. Because I've given you this land, as I said to Moses. Verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, under the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Probably from a river right here in this area the west coast, there shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Pharaoh had not been able to stand against Moses, king of all Egypt. So I'll be the same way with you that I was with Moses. I will not fail you nor forsake you. And then he tells him what his attitude and his approach should be. Be strong and of a good courage. For to this people shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them, the original promised land. God had sworn to Abraham that he would give them, and there would be to his seed down through the ages until today. Only be you strong and very courageous, not just have courage, but very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. We read that last night in Bible study in Luke 1 and other places about how obedience, holiness, and righteousness is a part of what we have to do to have peace and protection and to be able to live without fear. What Zechariah said about John the Baptist the child is true today because those scriptures that were fulfilled in Moses, Elijah, and in John the Baptist will be fulfilled again in the end time. Christ said, another Elijah has to arise, but John the Baptist was certainly a type of it, he said. They have a John the Baptist right in front of them and won't even listen to him. So those things will all be repeated. It's very clear in Malachi 4 5 that it is at the end time, right at the end of the age. So be very courageous and keep the law. Don't turn from it. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not be depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then shall you shall make your way prosperous, and then shall you have good success. So he tells you to be strong and courageous, but he says his success will be contingent upon reading and meditating on God's words and following them. So there's always a contingency. God said, I have a job for you to do, but here's what you must do. And that way you will have good success. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, or don't fear, is the word he put to us in uh, other places in the prophecies. Neither be dismayed. Don't be discouraged, don't be frustrated, don't be dismayed, for the eternal God is with you wherever you go. God is with you. That is Hebrew for Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means. God with you. Or God with us. Then Joshua commanded the office of the people, said, We're going to go on over and we're going to take this land. Now How did God start this out? He backed the Jordan River up. They walked across on dry land, just as he had brought Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea. It was in the springtime. The Jordan River was at flood level, roaring down through the canyon. And God stopped the waters and caused them to back up and pile up. And they walked across on dry land with that torrent of water just towering above them wasn't quite as spectacular, perhaps, as it was with the Red Sea. Probably the water was deeper and wider there, but nonetheless, pretty awe-inspiring and pretty dramatic that a flood, ri- flooded river would just back up and the rest would drain away and you could walk across. So God began to take a hand and show Joshua and the people that he was with them. Up to that point, they'd wandered around and died, hadn't they? Carcass after carcass after carcass, buried in the desert. Didn't appear as if God would save, but God did. God delivered. And he fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a smaller way then, just as he has in a bigger way here at the end time. Didn't the walls of Jericho, when they marched around, just simply fall down? Yes, they did. When the trumpet blew and a shout occurred, the walls simply fell down. Rahab's house apparently stood while the rest of the city fell down. Now, does God micromanage things or not? She and her house were saved. The rest of Jericho was destroyed. So God was with them. God delivered them. God saw to it that the job Joshua had been given was accomplished. Now let's go to the book of Ezra. Here you have a situation where an of God, were in, com- in contact with Cyrus. The Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation. And he said God had charged him to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Verse 2. Who is there among you of all his people? Now, Cyrus wasn't one of his people. He was a Gentile king. But he made this announcement to Israel. And he said, which of you will do this job? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. So he recognized the true God, even though he did not know him. He knew of him. Didn't know him. But he'd been commissioned by that God to do a job. So he made the proclamation and said, who among you will go and perform this? Now, he was the person in charge and could make the proclamation. He knew that he would be involved. He didn't do the actual work himself. He asked for volunteers of the Jews in the land of Utah, where Jerusalem was. So the chief of the fathers of Judah, verse 5, and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Eternal, which is in Jerusalem. So God stirred the spirit of those people. So then Cyrus provided all the necessities and needs of those people. And when they were fought against, God protected them. Now, there was an inside man to this story, I think that would have been Daniel. He was at the king's court when Israel was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel was taken as a young captive, and he rose to the height of the government and was an advisor to the king himself. Nothing's changed in the pattern, the way God works. In each era, he has put his people right up there with the rulers of the world. Always did, always has, always will. It's happened before, it will happen again. And almost invariably, there was trouble between God's people and the rulers of the land, the Gentile kings, was there not? Well, I think Daniel had probably told Cyrus, that there was a scripture there in Isaiah 44 and 45, whereby he would be the one who would build the temple of God. So Daniel had told him that. How else did he know? I don't think he read the Bible every day, probably, but I suspect Daniel told him that. So he says, well, okay, I'll do this, and then he made the proclamation. Interesting. A little later on, chapter 7, got a different king. Here we had Artaxerxes. So again, God's people were involved with the king of the land. Verse 11, well, let's see, uh, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even ascribed to the words of the commandments of the eternal and of the statutes to Israel. And he said, Artaxerxes, king of kings. The man had a pretty high opinion of himself, I would say, Uh, called himself the king of kings. Under Ezra, the priest, ascribed to the law of the God of heaven. Even Artaxerxes recognized the God of heaven. Did he worship him? Did he obey him? No, he did not. Did he know him? No, he did not. That he recognized that he was the God of heaven. Perfect peace at such a time. Then he made a decree that all there, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with you. And then he agreed to take care of the finances, just as Cyrus had done. They were there to fund the whole thing. He gave them a letter of authority, and he also gave them a letter of credit. We have letters of credit today. They're being frozen so the trade can't go on in the world, but he gave them authority to go and do what God had said needed to be done, and then he gave them a letter of money or credit saying, I'll pay for everything. That's incredible, isn't it? So Daniel would tell, most likely, a Gentile king who considered himself the king of kings the highest king of all kings. But he wanted a bunch of Jews to go build a temple in Jerusalem and the king would say, I'll do that. Unusual, wouldn't you say? God set it all up. Probably through Daniel. Made all the conditions right and then when enemies came, God delivered. There was a lecessed for a while in the building of the temple while it dealt with the enemies, but God delivered them out of their hand, and it started up again until it was done. Let's move forward to the book of Esther. Now, the commentaries tell us that the Ahasuerus, who is the king in the story of Esther, was the same Cyrus that we were dealing with in Ezra. Same man, different circumstance. Now that may or not be so, that's what the commentators said, and they've studied history quite a bit, and they may very well be right. Now we understand that there is to be an end time Cyrus as well, because Isaiah 44 and 45 are a prophecy of the future, not a historical story been fulfilled once, an original Cyrus when the temple was built. Now the temple has to be built again, and there will be another Cyrus come on the scene who will do the same thing. But in the story of Ahasuerus, had a huge realm, king of Persia, and he had a problem with his wife. You know the story, we've gone over it. And he dumped her, and then he took all the fair maidens of the land and decided to choose one to be the new wife, wound up being a Jew, uh, the Jewish Jewess named Esther. And she didn't tell him who she was because she figured that would scuttle the whole program right at the beginning, as her uncle Mordecai had told her. But she was brought into pretty close contact, I would say, with the king, this queen. And Mordecai, her uncle, came to be well favored in the court as well. Now, he'd sat outside the gate, and there was this fellow Haman who hated Jews. And just the very fact that Mordecai would be sitting there was enough to set Haman off. He wanted him dead and gone, along with all Jews. So he connived. And here, the Jews were connected very closely with the king. And yet a command went out that all Jews were to be killed in the empire all the way to India, around the world, wherever it may have been, at a huge empire, probably extended over here as well. It isn't said, it isn't stated. At any rate, God ported the circumstance. God saved his people. He delivered them with a mighty hand. So God again delivered, didn't he, in the days of Esther and Mordecai and probably Cyrus, the king. Now, when we understand that there is a Cyrus to come, that puts the story of Esther in focus. So is why Purim is important because it is a celebration of God's deliverance. And just as God pr- provided deliverance for those ancient Jews, he is going to provide deliverance for his spiritual Jews here at the end. So the story is very, very uh, germane to our situation today and the troubles that we are about to go into. And we are going to go into trouble. So we have the story of Esther there as a guide, as a lead, and how to honor the king, how to approach the king, how to show respect. You know, Gentile kings have a lot of power. And when they did, that power had to be handled very, very carefully because you could lose your head just like that. And that time is coming again. It's already here behind the scenes. There are a lot of people who simply disappear in this world if they cross the powers that be. Now we've all read different stories, even in our own country, couldn't happen in America, of people who, you know, die with bullets in the back of their head of suicide and things of that nature. So it's happening even in America today, and you can be sure that it has happened and has happened in Russia and in China and in many other Gentile kingdoms around the world. So it's not something that stopped, but what we're going to see from now on is an absolute and utter increase in this thing happening. So Esther is here as a story and as an example for us to consider as we are those who are upon whom the ends of the world have come. It's a very vital, important story. And doesn't it fit in the flow of all these other stories, from Genesis on down to this point, of God's people invariably being involved with the rulers around them and having to be delivered from those rulers? That story fits in perfectly with the flow of the rest of the Bible. We've only taken it as far as Esther now, but let's move on. Go to the book of Daniel. This is one that we have used, but I, I wanted to expand this thought a little bit and, and let us see a bigger picture here than maybe we have often considered in how, how often God's people have been involved with the rulers of the world in every era and how God has worked things out to fulfill his purposes, and he's always put his leaders adjacent to and entwined with the rulers of this world. Always has. Feeds up a story in Daniel 2 of Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in chapter 2, verse 28, it says, But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets, which is what Daniel said, and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. What is written here is an end-time book and the things they went through, the visions that were given, the power of the Gentile king, The kingdoms that would arise were a story not just of that day. Yes, they included that day because Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were involved. But they were a story for a latter or a later fulfillment that would occur in the latter days. We, you and I, are in the latter days. So this story is for us. Now, if it's for us, what does it include? It includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being in the very government of the biggest king on earth, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think that we are going to be in contact with the leaders of this world based on this story of the latter days? Fulfilled once then, perhaps fulfilled somewhat in type through history, but so very much alive today, and we're on the brink of it. God revealed secrets, and he shall make known to the Nebuchadnezzar, said, what shall come to pass. It says that Christ will come, ultimately, and the Gentile kingdoms will be subjected to him in verse 35. But we know the story here and how God said that there would be a great image built at the latter days. Great governmental powers would come. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't see the whole picture. Instead of getting what Daniel was trying to tell him, he came up with a totally different thing and told him about a Christmas tree and all this kind of stuff and how pagan it is and how God says learn not the way of the heathen and after explaining the whole thing the person says well I've been telling the kids we shouldn't cut down trees that was all he got out of it all he got out of it the story is we shouldn't cut down trees well I've done a lot of sinning here the last couple three weeks cut down a lot of trees but here it is with Nebuchadnezzar he built for himself a great image 90 feet tall. And he said, all the world has to bow to this image. Now he didn't get what Daniel said, that God is showing you what will come in the latter days and how kingdoms will come on the earth in this order. And we won't go into that whole story. I'm just trying to make the point that even though Nebuchadnezzar was told, he didn't get the picture. He admitted that God was God. But he didn't worship him and never came to know him. So what he took from what Daniel said was, well, if that's going to happen, I'll just go ahead and build it. So he built this huge statue that everybody worshiped. And then what happens? (coughs) Do you think that perhaps the people of God who were closely associated with Nebuchadnezzar at that point began to wonder, What is this man doing? He's building this huge statue, this huge image, this huge idol, I bet they would have interpreted. And one of these days, he's going to want us to bow down to what he has built. His interpretation of what Daniel said was all wrong. And he went off in a wrong direction. Tried to fulfill the prophecies of the latter days in his own day. And then when it was built, it says, when you hear the sacrament and all the musical instruments, bow down before this. And God's people who were on the scene and were in Nebuchadnezzar's favor would not bow down. So what did the king do? They used to cook enemies in this furnace. So he heated it seven times hotter. And the men who threw them in even died, it was so hot. But God delivered them. Saw four men walking in the fiery furnace, Christ or an angel with them. They came out and not, they didn't even smell like smoke. Now that in itself is difficult. I've been throwing wood in a wood stove over here for a few days, and every time I open it, I come in the house smelling a lot like smoke. Just a, just a little smoke out of that furnace is all it takes, and I'm smoky. And they walked in a huge fire where they could actually walk around. The eyebrows weren't singed, and they didn't even smell a smoke. What an incredible miracle. Some will poo-poo it and say, well, they just had trial and tribulation. They were criticized. I don't think so. I think this was literally the truth. But they were well thought of after that. Now what about Daniel? And he had enemies. Daniel had a very close relationship with the king. The king, He had, he had told the king his dreams, had interpreted them, had explained them, had explained about the God of heaven, and yet... Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the picture. Didn't understand God, even though he recognized him. And the enemies came, and they had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. The mouths of the lions were stopped. They didn't chew on him all night long. And the king loved Daniel, but he went ahead and threw him to the lions anyway because that's what he said should be the fate of those who would... Not bow down and worship what the king said to worship. The God delivered Daniel. This pattern is getting deeper and deeper. Well, no, that, that wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. That was Darius. There had been a change in kings. And... Uh, it was Darius who had thrown Daniel to the lions, and Nebuchadnezzar threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. Now right, let's go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. And here let's pick up about verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, Uh, You got the picture? I send you forth as sheep among wolves. you have any idea of what wolves do to sheep? Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Think, be careful, be wise, but you're not to hurt and harm. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, the judgments, the courts, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, religious persecution, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Has anything changed from what we've seen in all the examples in the Old Testament and now we're to the New? And Christ tells his disciples to become apostles, go out and you'll be brought before kings and governors. So the pattern is going to continue in the early New Testament church. They will be closely associated with the kings and governors of the world. will not be a pretty picture, however. Beware of them. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. So God says, you'll be brought there, and you'll give a testimony that I am God. Now didn't Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Moses, Joseph, do the same thing and attest that God was God? Nothing has changed. But when we deliver you up, not if, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. You don't need to sit around and worry and fret and sit in fear about what can I say if the king calls me in and he's about to walk my head off. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Well, don't worry about that. I'll give you the words you need to speak. In other words, walk by faith. Don't worry. Trust me. I delivered Daniel from the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all those Israelites. I can handle it. Now, the only question is, do we believe him when he says, I can handle it? Because all the things of the Old Testament Christ proclaims right here will happen in the New Testament. Starting a new covenant, better promises, same story. For it is not you that speak, the spirit of your father which speaks in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, the father the child. The children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, he was saying this to those disciples who had to endure to their end, but it is a far-reaching prophecy that comes right down to the end time. Remember, Daniel's prophecy was for the latter days, and those kingdoms that God talked about in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar, measure would be kingdoms here at the end. And this prophecy of Christ comes on through to the end enduring to the end not necessarily just your end but the end but when they persecute you in this city flee you into another for truly I say to you you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the son of man be come now that nails it but this stretches forth all the way to the end he wasn't just talking to those 12 men that Christ is going to come back before the scenario that he's describing here is finished. Uh, Luke 21. Luke 21. And let's pick up here about verse 12. He's talking here in the context, this ties in with Matthew 24, about kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes in different places, famines, pestilences, fearful sights, and great sights. But before all these, ahead of this, verse 12, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons. Now this is a time prophecy as well because it also talks about Christ returning and Jerusalem talks about witnesses uh, uh, with armies down in verse 20 and the desolation of abomination of desolation that comes at the end of the age. So this is an end. He's speaking to those men, but it extended not only to them, but beyond them is the point, to today. Before these heavenly signs and tremendous, terrible things that come, they lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts. Think about it ahead of time. Settle it in your hearts, brethren, not to meditate before what you shall answer. Don't live in fear. Trust God. Walk in faith. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Whatever debate we're in, we will win, because God will give the right words to say. You shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall lay cause to be put to death, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, rulers, people, everyone. But there shall not in hand of your head perish, and your patience possess you, your soul. And so some will die, but a hair of your head won't be touched. Now how do you do that? You kill them without pulling hair? No. Simply means physically you may die, but they can't touch you because he can resurrect. He can fix anything they do to us. So we're not to fear what men can do. We're not to be concerned about losing our physical lives because if we lose them, we'll save our eternal life. If we choose to save our physical life instead, by obeying them and bowing down to what they tell us to do, we'll lose our eternal life, and we might even lose our physical life on top of it. So well, you lose-lose if you go man's way. If you go God's way, you might lose your physical life, but you'll gain eternity. That's the only way to win, ultimately. So, how did it start out? The very first man that God called and had a purpose for, before Christ even began preaching, John the Baptist came into contact with Herod. We read in the scriptures, I won't go to all of it, but he had a relationship with Herod. Apparently, law talked to him fairly often, and Herod liked John the Baptist. And yet, because of someone who disliked John, his head was brought in on a charger. Had his head lopped off. Now, there's the very first man God used in the New Testament. John the Baptist will be in the kingdom of God, and he'll have his head be restored. So God is going to deliver John the Baptist. It's coming up real soon now. But the point is, the very first man came in contact with the ruler of the land and had a pretty good relationship with him until it turned sour because of someone else intervening and then he lost his head. How about Stephen? Back to Acts 7-8, through that section. He stood up before the rulers of the Jews. Now, there was a Roman presence, but uh, overall in the government, but the Jews had a great deal of authority among their own people. And Stephen came up against what? The rulers of the Jews. And he preached a sermon that curled their hair. And they killed him. Stoned him to death. Stephen will be saved. Some of these people died, just like Christ said in those scriptures we just read, didn't they? It actually befell them in that day and age, and it's going to befall us here at this end time as well. Some will be killed. Some will be saved. Now, ultimately, all the apostles were martyred with the exception of John. They were killed, physically lost their lives. Where are they going to be when Christ returns? They're going to be the head, each one of them, of a tribe of Israel, spiritually speaking, in the kingdom of God. So they were willing to give up their physical lives in order to be in eternity with God. They made that sacrifice. Now John was not killed, but the stories say that he was boiled in oil. You take olive oil and heat it up to where it boils and rolls and bubbles and then dump somebody in there, uh, that generally cooked you pretty quickly. Fried John. Where did the Catholics come up with Friar John? I don't know. <clears> they <throat> call them friars. But it didn't hurt him if it happened. Now, John was a man that had a great deal of love. He was very close to Christ. So he had to go through the anticipation of death, the same as the other apostles, but God saved him out of it. Why? Just because John was a favorite? I don't think so. He was close to him, but John had a final word that had to be preached. He'd written the book of John earlier, but he had to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He had to write the book of Revelation. So God preserved him until well into his 90s, right at the end of that age, and then had him write those three books of instruction and warning for us, in the book of Revelation, which is one of the most popular books of the Bible because it has to do with today. So he preserved his life for a particular purpose, otherwise I think John would have died in the oil, uh, like the other apostles died by being crucified or however they died. So, what about Paul? Interesting, interesting story here. I want to go to this one just to, to pick up a part of it. Acts twenty-seven. <coughs> here, Paul was on his way to Rome. He had been condemned, and he appealed to Caesar since he was a Roman citizen. And he was on his way. The feast of T- I mean the uh, day of Atonement had come. Verse nine. had Already passed, and. Uh, Then they were out on a ship, headed for Rome. And they came to Crete. They lightened the ship, and yet it was still going to be destroyed. Now let's go down to verse 24. An angel came to Paul and said, Fear not, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given you all them that sail with you. So he's going through shipwreck with these people. And God said, don't fear, Paul. You're going to be brought before Caesar. You're going to have contact with the leader, the top king of all the earth. So don't fear here in this shipwreck. You'll survive. Isn't this the case where he also got bit by the snake? Maybe it wasn't. I think it was. And nothing happened. Well, God was preserving Paul for a very particular purpose. Paul could have died right there in the shipwreck. God had something different in mind. He said, don't fear, you're not going to die here, you're going before Caesar. Well, what happened when he went to Caesar? Caesar had him killed. God had a purpose. God delivered him from the shipwreck, delivered him from the serpent, delivered him from three stonings, delivered him from all kinds of problems that Paul went through in his life, when he came in contact with the rulers of this world. And then he brought him before the supreme ruler of the world, short of Satan, but next to him. And there he died for God's purpose, having given testimony that God is God. So the pattern continues in the New Testament. Now, let's fast forward to the end time. We have a man named Herbert Armstrong who was raised up, who came to understand God's ways, began to preach a gospel, and many, many people began to uh, listen and heard, and tens of thousands of them then became converted. We among them. And here we are. But I find it very interesting that he went to, the kings of the earth, many of them. He had a good relationship with them, just as Daniel had had, just as Joseph had had, just as others had had. Now, he was not brought before them in the sense that Christ prophesied uh, for comeuppance or for punishment, but he still went before them or went to them. Now, Herbert Armstrong's message was basically a... Kind, gentle, loving message, wasn't it? He went to them and said, there's two ways of life, give and get. And give is the better way of life, and you can't outgive God, and if you will obey God's laws and obey his ways, uh, you'll be blessed. It was a very benign ministry for the most part. Now, I do remember him getting in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of those prophecies way back in the 50s and 60s, on the radio, and boy, he would come unglued at times about how sinful our nation is and so on, how we needed to repent. So there was a certain amount of that, but over time there was less and less and less of that. And (coughs) he went to the rulers of the world and said, there's a better way. You're part of the greedy system and the get, get, get. But give, give, give is better. And you'll be better off if you'll live a give way of life. Now it was a kind way of saying, if you obey God and are a giver like God is and tells us to be, you'll be blessed by God, and if you disobey God, you're going to get destroyed. Now he could have given a very, very powerful message, couldn't he? How long would he have lasted? How many kings would he have been invited to see? Not very many. How many kings could he have bought his way in to see? Not very many, if he had had that kind of message. Now, John the Baptist had a pretty good relationship with Herod. The scripture even says, or implies, that Herod enjoyed talking with John the Baptist. And the kings of the earth apparently enjoyed talking with Herbert Armstrong. He pumped them up told them how they were important people, and then gave them the message of give instead of get. Now, had they listened, what would have happened? They'd have learned to give instead of being greedy all the time, and the world would not be facing the problems it is facing today. So when he went to those leaders and rulers, they didn't listen to him. When he spoke a kind message, Somewhat a message of repentance to the nation. It didn't repent. The world didn't repent. A certain amount, however, listened and were called to the give way of life. To give ourselves as servants before God to each other and ultimately to this world as servants of God to do a work for God. So Herbert Armstrong did not break the pattern in the end time of God's people going to the rulers of the world one way or another, for good or for bad. But mostly it was for good in the Old Testament. Sometimes it turned bad and then got good again. Daniel was in great favor, then he was in great disfavor, then he was in favor and made ruler over the land. Joseph went through the same up and down. And Herbert Armstrong had his ups and downs somewhat with the rulers of this world as well. He may have made some mistakes in the things that he did, but essentially, overall, he was brought in contact with the rulers of this world, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. That was with the former temple. Now, because of Laodiceanism and because we did not do it the way God intended to do it and the way Herbert Armstrong wanted us to do it, and he often said, Brother, you're just not good in it. And we weren't, and we didn't, and we got spewed out. We didn't listen to him either. So, God spewed the church out and made a mess of everything. Well, we made the mess, and then he blew us apart. All right, now let's fast forward to the end. The latter temple, which now must be built. Now, if the temple has got to be built, circumstances have to be such that it will occur. And God says in Isaiah 44 and 45 that he is going to send Cyrus who will say to the temple, your foundation must be laid, and to Jerusalem, You must be built. I know a man who has quoted that, didn't know he was quoting it, but said those words to me about a year and a half ago. Does that make him the man? Not necessarily, but he said exactly what Isaiah 44, last two or three verses say. And he is a man who is doing the things that Isaiah 45 says, even though it is, perhaps unbeknownst to him. He's going to help God's people just like the original Cyrus did. Now, is he a Gentile king? Maybe, maybe not. His name was changed. But he apparently came from royalty, and God said, I've changed your surname. It was changed to a name that is a title of royalty. Is that by happenstance? I doubt it. Could have changed it to Smith or Jones. It's not the way it came down. God changed to something that sounds somewhat royal. <coughs> now, those prophecies of Daniel are going to come to pass. God's people are going to be connected with Osiris, but they're also going to be <coughs> connected with the false prophet and the beast you are going to come in close contact with the rulers of the new world order. It's going to happen. Micah 4.13 says that God is going to make his people, when they go out into the wilderness, they're delivered there, he's going to make them a new, sharp, threshing instrument. Then he goes on in chapter 5 to say that they will go out against the Assyrian. Let me go back and read that. This is powerful, brethren. This is powerful. Brethren. Micah 4 <clears throat> says Tells us to be in pain to be delivered in verse 10. Go even to Babylon, go out in the wilderness, go away from the cities, there the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Verse eleven Now also many nations are gathered against you. In time church, lighter temple, give them the first. Uh, rain, as it says up in, oh, about verse 7 or 8. Many nations will go against you that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye, our eye look down upon Zion, as inferred, third. But they know not the thoughts of the eternal, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves to the floor, like it's so much uh, sheaves of corn gathered. And then he tells the church, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. They're going to be brought in like a crop of corn in sheaves, and God tells us to thresh them. Now that's violent on corn cobs when you thresh it. And the corn all comes off the cob. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain to the eternal and their substance to the eternal of the whole earth. He's going to start a process with his people that is going to lead to all their possessions and all their wealth being given to God. And Christ is going to reign supreme when it's all finished. But he's going to put his people in charge. And the governments of this world cannot stand against it. Isaiah 41:15 says the same thing. Make us a, fresh, a, a new threshing instrument. Gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, speaking of Judah here, I think. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. That doesn't kill you. It hurts, but it doesn't kill you. But you, Bethlehem Ephraim, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me, that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth had been from old from everlasting. Speaking of Christ ultimately, and perhaps of Zerubbabel as a type in the meantime. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So a gathering will come once things come apart. Verse 4, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the eternal and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, Bethlehem, the a small group of people. For now shall he be great in the ends of the earth. And this man, it is a man, not just Christ himself, but a man as a type of Christ. This man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. And speaking to the end-time church, most of which is in the United States and Canada. And the Assyrian is coming into our land, and it is in our land that we will make a stand, not in the Middle East, not in that Judah, or not in that Israel. The Assyrian will come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we, his people, not the government of this land, but God's people, shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men." Now notice, And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. The remnant of Judah, the remnant of the church. Shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the eternal, as the showers upon the grass. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest. The lion's pretty powerful among the beasts of the forest. What is God going to do? Now, Herbert Armstrong gave a very gentle message to the kings and the leaders of this world, and they didn't listen, would not hear it. God is again going to send His church, not just to men, but seven, even eight principal men will stand against the Assyrian. I don't know exactly what the function will be, but they're going to lay waste to the Assyrian when he comes into our land. And then God is going to raise up two leaders who will be in touch. First of all, the Assyrians, who will build a temple and will build Jerusalem and have the temple vessels and the riches of God to do it with. That's very clear in the Scripture. So they will have contact with a Cyrus who helps God's people, and then they will be in contact with the leaders of the world, B two, the beast and the false prophet, the false witnesses of Satan, and they will be given great power over them, so that they can cause any plague at whatever time they wish. They can stop the rain. And if anyone tries to hurt them, fire will come out of their mouths and kill them. Incredible power God is going to give. Now God has delivered in the past. He's given power to Joseph, given power to Abraham, given power to Daniel, to Esther, to Mordecai, given power to Moses to do wonders and signs. And he's going to do the same thing all over again. Now we may have trouble, we may have enemies, but God says that we're going to be in contact with those kings, Both one who is a type of King Cyrus and who is one who is the type of the king over all the earth. Satan working through the beast. And God's people will give him power over it. Now do you believe that? As in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He says, the just shall live, shall walk by faith. Now we have seen today a panoply of examples. God has delivered his people when they have been right there next to the kings, the rulers of the people around them, and the kings of the earth. So the evil things were done to some of them, like Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right in when they were friends with the kings of the earth. And yet somehow it was turned against them. They were threatened, almost killed, but God delivered them. Now that is the story of history. God has given us all those examples that we've gone through today, briefly, of the relationship of his people with the rulers of this world. And that is coming again. Now can we take these examples? And no matter how things look, no matter how badly things might turn sometimes in those relationships with the rulers that we will be in contact with, Do we believe in God, and do we believe that God is going to fulfill his word and put us in contact with those leaders of the world? Now, in my memory, even, Herbert Armstrong was put in contact with the leaders of the world, sometimes by invitation, sometimes by buying his way in, but God saw to it that it happened. And he gave a very benign, encouraging story. This time it's going to be very, very different. This time it will be a witness against. Why didn't you listen to that man who said give instead of get? Why didn't you do it God's way? Now you're going to have trouble. And if you don't listen, you're going to have your water turned to blood. If you don't listen, you're going to have plagues. And if you try to kill us, fire will devour you. You'll be burned up and dead because you won't obey God. That's what's coming. God has said so. Very clear scriptures. Are you ready for this ride? We've come in contact with someone that I think may be fulfilling. Cyrus, the king. But I don't know how it's all going to go. I've heard some things recently whereby he wants us to be on his page, wants us to believe everything he believes, bow down to his image of what he thinks God is. I've listened to him for hundreds of hours, and his image of what God is is way different than my image of what God is. And he tells me we're going to go ahead and pursue this project that we're talking about in Jerusalem, but you have to accept my image of God, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, I won't bow down to your image. Won't do it. All right. Got any lions? Got any furnaces? Would that shake us? We thought, well, this guy might have been something. Now he's turning against us, it appears. Maybe, maybe not. What if he does? Don't we have, haven't we reviewed today, story after story after story, when all God's people got close to the kings and the rulers of this world, invariably trouble came. Invariably trouble came. Death was threatened. Murder was perpetrated. Murder was stopped. Do you believe God? Do you believe the story that says that we will triumph in the end? These lessons are here. Not that we might shy away in fear, but that we might move forward in faith. And if those who seem to be friendly do turn against us, then it's possible that it could happen. That shouldn't shake us at all. Because that's the way it's always been. It's never been any different than that. But in the end, it always turned out that God's people won. Now when this thing all comes down, and the beasts and the false prophets square away against God's two witnesses in the end, it says they'll have a great war between them. And the beast is going to win. And they're going to be killed. And their bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem. And they won't allow them to be buried because they want to groat. And they'll send emails and television pictures all over the world and send gifts one to another about how we won. And three and a half days later, they're going to get up out of the street. And it's going to be an awfully moment. something like that. Because God is going to cause his people to win. Even when they think they have the victory, three and a half days later it all turns bad for them. And Christ returns. And he will set up the millennium. Don't fear. Be of good courage. Be strong. Fear not and work because we are the people of God as weak as we may be and God has to overlook our sins and forgive us and we'll use us in spite of ourselves but he's promised that he will and we win in the end think about these lessons of history because they are not only history they are prophecy